There is, to my knowledge, only one video in existence of me dancing. It's from our wedding in 2006. Uh, at the reception, the camera catches me for like 10 seconds, breaking it down to Ladies' Night by Cool and the Gang. Now, just by looking at me, you might think I'm a wonderful dancer, <laughs> but you would be wrong. <laughs> I'm a terrible dancer, just awful, which is one of the reasons why I'm so glad that I got married to Jennifer in 2006. That was one year before the iPhone came out, so that I know the only video of me dancing is safely tucked away somewhere in our home. Well, y'all, we... <sighs> We're in John chapter 2 today. We're going to, at the beginning of John chapter 2. And it's an exciting day for us in, in the context of the book of John because this is the first miracle of Jesus that John records for us. But it's a strange miracle, if we're honest. And part of what's strange about it is the context for it. Because here in the first miracle of Jesus, we don't have a sick person being healed. We don't have someone in danger being saved, what we actually find is uh, a, an embarrassment at a wedding that Jesus is helping take care of. The very first miracle that John records, Jesus is at a wedding, and the, the bride and groom face an, an embarrassing moment, and Jesus helps them out of a jam. Now, of course, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm summarizing it uh, foolishly. But in a sense, that's what happens. I want us to read this today. We're going to read the, the whole story before we go into the details. And you'll see what I mean. It just, it's not the kind of miracle we might expect, especially the first one recorded in the gospel. But let's, let's look at it together. It really is wonderful to read. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John tells us, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to the servants, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, I mentioned this. this. This miracle comes in the midst of, of a serious social embarrassment. That's the context. Jesus attends a wedding. His mom is there. He's with his disciples in a town called Cana. It would not have been a very big town. 
But in this culture, weddings were, were the main event. I mean, we make a big deal out of weddings even now, but back then, a wedding and the feast could take up to a week. Not two or three hours, but a week. With, with new guests arriving each day throughout the week, and there was lots of eating and drinking and making merry. It was a true celebration. Well, in this case, the wine has run out in the middle of the feast. And that would have been deeply shameful to the groom and his family. The groom was responsible for putting on the feast and providing the meat and drink. And so we've invited all these people, but we can't provide for them. That's the scenario. And in a small town where everybody knew each other, this would have been a social disaster. Very shameful. And so what does Mary do? Like any good mother, perhaps she's even helping, you know, kind of put the wedding together. We don't know. But like a, like, uh, a, a true mom, she steps in and tries to help. She says to Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus, this is verse 3, Jesus says to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, when Mary says they have no wine, she's not just making a comment. She's asking Jesus for help. And, and we're not sure what Mary would have actually wanted Jesus to do about this problem. But she's, she's bringing him in on it. She's involving him. And that's why Jesus says to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? Now, this is, that verse is actually difficult to translate because here's what it literally says. When John records it in Greek, Jesus is actually saying, what is it to me and to you? What is it to me and to you? Now, at, at first reading, we look at this and think, man, Jesus is speaking pretty sharply, pretty rudely, maybe even, to his own mother. And we shouldn't read it like that. There's, there's no uh, rudeness intended here. He's not being sharp, but he is being clear. Jesus in this moment is making a distinction. He's creating a natural sense of, of separation at this point. And it makes sense to us when we, when we consider that Jesus, his official ministry has just begun. Uh, Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist, and at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus as a dove, and it remained there, and the Father spoke. God said, this is my beloved Son. In him I am well pleased. Jesus' ministry is now completely submitted to his heavenly Father. Jesus will say this later on in the Gospel of John. I only do what I see my Father in heaven doing. I only speak what my Father in heaven speaks. He is entirely submitted to the will of the Father. And that means that even Jesus' own dear mother, Mary, is now subordinate to Jesus' mission and his purpose for coming into the world. Jesus is the Messiah, and he is now walking out that road. And so he rightly says, what is it to me and to you? I, I have a new purpose and agenda that I've been ordained to fulfill. And y'all, this becomes especially clear that Jesus is talking about something more in the next thing he says. He says to his mother, my hour has not yet 
come. Now, what does that mean? We actually see this in the Gospel of John. We're going to see Jesus say it several times. My hour has not yet come. But then beginning in chapter 13, as he prepares to go to the cross, Jesus starts to say, my hour has come. My hour. Now, when Jesus says my hour, that's a reference to his death, his death on the cross. My hour, my death, this is the purpose for which I have come into the world. And we all know that to be true. But he says to Mary, my hour is not yet. Okay. What does that have to do with the issue at hand? What does that have to do with the lack of wine and the social embarrassment at this wedding feast? Well, let's find out. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. So his mother, now Mary's not, she didn't turn around and pout. Look at what she does. His mother turns and says to the servants, whatever he does, whatever he, I'm oh, sorry, whatever he says to you, do it. And that's a great mantra for life, by the way. Mary does us a, a favor here. She simplifies it. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. That's how I want to live my life. Well, there were six stone water jars. Verse 6, six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to the servants, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Um, we wash our hands before meals. At least I hope we do. But why? Why do we wash our hands? Well, it's because we don't want to communicate germs. We don't want to spread germs. We don't want to put germy fingers in our mouths if we're eating, right? But when the Jews, when the, the people of, of uh, Israel, when they washed their hands, in this case, they washed in the stone water pots before the wedding feast, that was not so much about sanitation like we do, it was about purification. Okay. Um, there, was a fair, there was a clear spiritual emphasis in the washing with uh, the water of the stone water pots. Y'all, we, we just finished Leviticus, going through our Bible reading plan this year. And in Leviticus, it's so clear. God goes to great lengths to show his people what it means to be clean and pure before him. God does not want us to be defiled in his presence, and so he creates all of these means by which we may be purified. It's a law of purification that God gives. And so when we see the stone water pots, which were there for washing, that was not merely clean your hands before the meal. That was something deeply spiritual. That it was, it was a, a reflection on the Jews' need for purification. Okay, both outside and inside. And so this should go without saying, I'm sure, but, but they didn't drink from these stone water pots. They didn't drink this water. It was purely for cleansing, for purification. Well, Jesus says, fill those water pots up all the way to the top. That's 150 or so gallons. And then look, draw some out now, he says, and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
this miracle seems very subtle in the way John writes it, doesn't it? I mean, we would almost miss it if we weren't really reading. The head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine. At some point between the servants filling up the water pots with water and then going back to draw it out, at some point in between, Jesus miraculously turns that water into wine. And not just Costco wine or whatever cheap wine would be. No, this is 150 gallons of the best wine there, there probably ever was. That's an, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a neat story, right? But what's the point of the story? I mean, what is Jesus doing? I, I mentioned earlier the strangeness of this miracle. Uh, I'm sure you're like me. When we picture Jesus performing a miracle, if I said, what, what miracle do you see when you close your eyes? Well, probably the healing of the sick, walking on water, uh, um, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead, things of that nature, right? Miracles. Uh, saving a young married couple from embarrassment doesn't really register the same way, does it? But y'all, there's so much more than that going on here. And I want us to take a look again at, at verse 11. As John concludes this account, he summarizes for us uh, what ultimately is the point, I think. And he says, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. There's a, there are several things that are important in that verse, but the first one is the word signs. Y'all, John never uses the word miracle. In all of the book of John, 21 chapters, John doesn't use the word miracle when he talks about Jesus's power. He calls them signs. He always calls them signs. And that's very purposeful because what John is trying to show us here is what a sign is. A sign, and now we know this from everyday life, signs are things that point us to something else. The sign is not the thing itself. The sign is the pointer. It's the arrow. It's the indicator of the thing it's telling us about, right? And so, y'all, this is, this is something about Jesus that we, we must understand. Whether we call them miracles or signs, the same point remains. Jesus never performed a miracle simply as a show of power to impress us or to get out of a jam for his own benefit. No, no, no these weren't magic tricks. No, all of Jesus' miracles were signs that pointed to something even greater than the miracle itself. Now, I want to say that again. All of Jesus' miracles were signs pointing to something greater than even the miracle itself. That's why John, chapter 2, verse 11, John says, he manifested his glory to his disciples. The point of the miracle was not, look at all this wine. No, the point of the miracle is, look at Jesus. And always, it seems, when there's a miracle taking place, the disciples are at least somewhat ignorant of what Jesus is doing. But they're always saying things like, who is this man? 
that even the wind and the sea obeys him. Who is this man who can do these things? And so even if they don't really understand fully what's going on, the disciples are getting the right idea. Don't fixate on the miracle itself. Because the miracle is pointing us to something greater, and in this case, someone greater. We're meant to see the miracle worker in what he's doing. And so, y'all, John, uh, we'll see this. John records seven signs or miracles in this gospel. There were a lot more than seven, and he tells us that. But listen to what he says as to why he put these in this gospel. Why did God, through John, give us the seven miracles he gave us? And here's the answer. This is from John chapter 20, beginning in verse 30. John says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So when we look at this miracle, strange as it may be, uh, from our perspective, it's not a second-rate miracle. It's not a lesser miracle. No one got healed in this case. No one got resurrected from the dead in this case. But it's not a second-rate miracle. It serves the purpose, John says, it serves the purpose of pointing us to who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. And by trusting him, believing him, we have life in his name. That's why it's in here. Okay. But still, always for me, still, the question remains, why? Why did Jesus provide so much wine? That's not a very Baptist thing to do. 150 gallons? Was that really necessary? And why did Jesus choose those stone water pots to perform the miracle? Those water pots that were, that were full of dirty water from the cleansing of hands, people would have flipped if they knew that they were drinking from those water pots. Why did Jesus do it that way? Well, I mentioned this last week. Jesus never does anything haphazardly or randomly. He always has a purpose. And oftentimes Jesus has a greater purpose than what maybe we see with the naked eye. Remember now that odd statement that he first made to Mary. He said, my hour has not yet come. My death, the hour of my death, it's not here yet. Okay, that's sure. But what, what, for what reason does he bring that up when his ministry's just begun? His hour is yet still a, a long way off. But that, when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, he's tipping us off here to the heart of the miracle, the heart of the sign. Y'all, what Jesus is about to do in turning that water into wine, he's about to show us, give us a picture of what his death will accomplish, what his hour will fulfill. And so think about it with me. We've got, in this story, we've got God's people, the Jews. Before they can enter into the wedding feast, they used their stone water pots. This was absolutely typical. They did this all the time. They get the water from the stone pots, and they make themselves ceremonially, ceremonially pure. But there's an obvious problem. Whenever they wash their hands in these stone water pots, they're reminded of something, something very deep and very true. The water in these pots 
can clean the outer person, yes. But it cannot cleanse the inner person. You can wash away the dirt from under your fingernails, but you cannot simply wash away the sins of your heart. And for us, we, we have to see this. Those water pots would have served as a constant reminder to the people. We are stained by sin, and we must be cleansed in the sight of God. We are sinners in need of purification, such that water in a pot can never provide. It's only a symbol. And so Jesus says, fill those pots with water all the way to the top. And then by his miraculous power, that water becomes wine. Wine. Y'all, when, when the Bible speaks of the reign of the Messiah, of the rule of Christ, what will his kingdom be like? One of the images that we always seem to find over and over in the scripture is the image of wine, abundant and new wine. Uh, in, in the book of Amos chapter 9, God promises days are coming, God says, when there will be such abundance in the land that the one who treads the grapes will overtake the one who sows the seed. The idea being there's going to be so, mo so much produce that we're not going to plant the seed and wait months and months and months until the harvest. There's going to be harvest all the time. The one who treads the grapes will overtake the one who sows the seeds. And then it says in Amos 9 that the mountains will drip sweet wine. The whole earth will be saturated with sweet wine. Y'all, that's a symbol of joy of gladness, of provision, and prosperity, and favor. That's what the rule, the reign of Messiah, is going to be like. Now fast forward a bit to Jesus Christ. This is a story we all know well, because we, we practice it every Sunday here at Harvest. Toward the end of Matthew, Jesus institutes communion with his disciples. He breaks the bread, and he distributes to them the cup. And when he takes the cup, the wine, at the Last Supper, Jesus says to them, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That's, that's an image right there. This wine is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That's what his hour was about to accomplish. But then he says something interesting, as if the the cup being the blood wasn't interesting. But listen to this. He, Jesus says, And I will not drink of the wine again until I drink it with you, new in my Father's kingdom. In other words, my hour has come now to shed my blood for the forgiveness of sins, and the result will be that you and I will drink new wine together in the Father's kingdom forever. The mountains will drip sweet wine, and we will enjoy it for always. And see, in this story, John chapter 2, when Jesus creates an abundance of wine from the water in those pots, 
He's sending us a message about his salvation. And the message for us is this. No longer will we live under the false notion that perhaps we can clean ourselves up and make ourselves acceptable to God. And no longer must we live under the depression of knowing the unchangeable impurity of our own hearts, which God cannot accept because we are sinners. No, the, the, the endless cycle of trying to make myself clean, but knowing deep down that I'm not, that cycle is over. Something new and something better has come. Y'all, the ceremonial washing was just a symbol of purification. But in Jesus Christ, we now have the real thing. We have actual purification. Hebrews 1 tells us that, that after his death and resurrection, Jesus uh, had made purification of sins. Jesus made purification of sins. Not us for ourselves, but him on our behalf. Jesus, when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, he then turns right around and gives us a picture of what his hour is going to produce, what his death is going to accomplish, the inbreaking of a new covenant full of joy and abundance and grace and favor forever to those who trust him. Y'all, I personally, I think it's significant that the water pots were filled up to the brim, to the very top, because that itself is a picture of what Jesus has done. There is nothing at all that we must add. Jesus has done it all. He has, he, has, he has given us a salvation that cannot be improved upon, that nothing you and I do could, could somehow add quality to it or fill in the gaps. No, the perfect Son of God has come to give us a perfect and complete salvation. His grace filled to the brim. And so how do we respond to reading this miracle? You know, I, as we close, I just want, I want to encourage us to take what John says in chapter 2, verse 11, what he says about the disciples, let's take that to our own hearts. Let's respond in that same way. You see what he says? This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You know, it's something that's interesting when it says the disciples believed in him, um, they did not yet know the full story like we get to. See, we're reading the, we can read the whole thing in one sitting. They were still at the very beginning of ministry with Jesus. This was the first miracle they witnessed. And so the disciples don't yet really understand what his hour means. They certainly have no expectation that Jesus is going to be nailed to a cross. But... As Jesus graciously reveals his glory to them, as he manifests his glory, they see and they believe. And John pulls back the curtain for us so that we get to see it too. And so in this account, we have, we have, the, uh, we have a symbol of the old giving way to a symbol of the new. We have water becoming wine. 
And so I just, I want to close this by asking us to evaluate our own hearts this morning. Y'all, this seems strange, maybe. It seems like we would all be too smart for this. But so many of us, still to this day, so many of us, are convinced that we can operate in the old way or that we must operate in the old way. So many of us, and it, it, it rattles around in me too, I promise it does. So many of us, we live with this idea that, that somehow I could clean myself up. Somehow I can be a good enough person. I can try hard. I can do enough good that if God should grade me on a curve, I'd make it in. And I'm trying hard to do right. Y'all, that's the most natural form of religion in the world. But it's completely empty. It's completely empty. Because ultimately, the emphasis is on me and my works, what I'm able to do and earn and achieve. And the emphasis is not where it belongs, on God and His grace. Y'all, there is... Through Jesus, a new creation being ushered in here. This is water into wine. The fullness of God's grace poured out. His mercy, His love poured out for us to be received and never achieved. To be received by faith, not earned by works. We should never live and walk in the old way of trying to keep ourselves clean. When Jesus has once and for all made purification of sins for us. Y'all, the head waiter said to the groom, everybody serves the good stuff first. And after the folks have had their fill, then the poor stuff comes out. But you, you saved the best wine until now. Y'all, when God sends his son Jesus Christ into the world, he's giving us his very best. There's nothing at all that God has left undone or held out on us or held back from us. He has given us his very, very best. And John's desire, as we read his gospel, is simple. That we might behold the glory of Jesus Christ and believe in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this miracle, which to us may feel strange. It doesn't seem like the kind of miracle we're used to reading about, the kind of miracle where Jesus you know, heals or, or saves or raises from the dead. And yet, Father, I pray that we would, that we would see that what's happening here is greater and deeper and more wonderful than, we may, than we'll ever know. Jesus Christ showing us why he's come. Not just that he has the power to do miraculous things, but that he has come for, a, for such an hour as the cross to shed his own blood so that we might drink 
the new wine together with him in the kingdom forever, that we might have um, a, a place at the, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, celebrating the fullness of his grace toward us. Father, where we are prone, where I am prone to go back into the old way, to look at myself, to look at my activities, to look at my religious you know, credentials and think, maybe I'm good enough, or maybe with a few uh, adjustments I could, I could make myself acceptable. Maybe if I try harder, I'll be okay. Father, remove that far from us. We are saved by grace through faith. And let that be the most joyful thing um, that our hearts can hold. That there is nothing of me added in. And there is no need. God's grace, your grace, Lord, is filled to the brim. Thank you for it. Thank you for Jesus. Let us behold his glory and believe in him. We pray in his name. Amen.